Okay, hi, Alaka. Uh, welcome to the Great Writers Project. Uh, thank you for talking to us today. We're here today to discuss uh, post-colonial women writers as a, a category, I suppose, though we might want to talk about the, the limits of that. On the post-colonial section of the Great Writers website at the moment, there's a distinct predominance of, of male writers, with uh, Olive Schreiner being the only female writer we currently have. I was wondering if you wanted to perhaps give a general overview of intersections between women writers and post-colonial writers in perhaps the post-independence era as opposed to the era of imperialism and colonialism. Thanks, Dom. It's great to talk to you and uh, give another offering to the um, Great Writers Inspire post-colonial pages. Um, you're right, there's an almost shocking lack of women's representation on these pages, but this is nothing new. It's very much of a piece with the continuing, not so much marginalization, but secondary position of women writers on most canons, um, whether of contemporary writing or of writing from mm. past centuries. And I think that probably the paucity of women's names on post-colonial reading lists, on post-colonial syllabi, reflects the struggle, the greatest struggle, that women writers anywhere at all times um, have to contend with in getting published, in getting the time to write, in representing their lives. I think that's one broad and endemic problem. There are other issues that are more pertinent uh, or more particular to, if you like, post-colonial women writers. So we're talking about writers coming from regions and spaces like East, West and Southern Africa, South Asia, the Caribbean. One major issue, I think, that uh, women writers have had to grapple with, um, they, they can't not, they can't get around it, is the whole issue of representativeness, how women writers in all kinds of different contexts, and especially actually when this kind of literature used to be called you know, third world literature, mm. were being invoked, were being interpolated to speak for their entire gender or their entire condition or their nation. It is the case that women as woman as metaphor is often called upon to stand in for a national condition. Uh, whereas male writers, obviously I'm speaking in very broad terms, male writers can speak in particular, uh, speak out of their own condition rather than being called upon to speak for an entire group. So I think this has put something of um, a burden of responsibility on by and large middle class women writers across, if you like, the post-colonial world that many have either shied away from or um, chosen to elude. The case of a writer like Anita Desai from India, um, who's the mother of Kiran Desai, so it's a nice mother-daughter configuration there. You know, she's, in terms of the quality of her writing, easily of a stature with someone like Rushdie. But she's mm. always chosen to speak of if you like, more peripheral or sideways or secondary issues compared to Rushdie, who's you know, taken on, for example, in Midnight's Children, you know, the story of the nation in shame, mm -hmm. the story of third world Islamic state. 
Anita Desai simply has skirted around those big topics. She's simply chosen to sidestep this invocation of post-colonial writer as the voice of a, of a community, women in particular, in that role. Yeah, it's interesting we think about how we might understand post-colonial literature as um, the empire writing back, the sort of rewriting of very Eurocentric grand narratives. But then within those narratives, we have to push against the narratives of, of the patriarchy. Uh, is it impossible for post-colonial women writers to tackle these simultaneously or to do they have to carve out their own space within... Uh, the post within the post-colonial nation, there's then a women's space within that resistant to both. Um, what women in post-colonial spaces have to deal with is the burden of you know what feminists in the 1980s, 1990s were referring to as double or even triple colonization. Mm -hmm. You know, being marginalised yeah. on the grounds of um, race, uh, often class or if you like world position, and then also gender. And what that means is that for a woman writer to speak on behalf of a community brings up the question of which community. Is it, you know, the mm -hmm. oppressed community uh, of her gender or of her nation, region, class, or indeed of her race? You mm -hmm. know, so that those, those questions of representativeness are always doubly or triply inflected. Another really important point in relation to that question. This whole post-colonial role of rewriting, right? Revising the empire rights back from Salman Rushdie. To rewrite implies assuming quite an authoritative position. I mean, yeah. it's represented as coming from the outside in, you know, writing from the margins of empire into the metropolis, into the center. Yeah. But I mean, let's face it, someone like Rushdie, rugby educated, Cambridge educated, yeah, he came to that job, if you like, that self-appointed job of rewriting with a significant par for the course. You know, mm -hmm. he, he came to it with a certain amount of cultural authority. And that cultural authority is simply something that, that women writers don't have unless their class position is a significantly elevated mm -hmm. one. And it is interesting, just casting one's eye kind of across the post-colonial regional spectrum, um, looking at some of the younger writers, but also some of the older women writers, their class position is, in most cases, you know, an elevated one, an elite position. Um, mm. You know, Kamla Shamsi, Anita Desai, whom I already mentioned. If you look over to the Caribbean, Jamaica Kincaid, yeah. Lorna Goodison... They're all women who bring a certain social status mm -hmm. along with them um, to their writing project. And I, and I do think that is kind of indispensable if you're going to undertake rewriting. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you generally, if you know, you've been educated you know, barely or only to age 11 and then you've worked mm -hmm. on a production line, and this of course applies to women across the world, not just the post-colonial world, then you, you, you're simply not going to prioritise, you know, rewriting as something important to you. You may, and this is another very important element, I think, in um, assessing post-colonial women's writing, what it is, what it comprises, um, you are going to want to tell your own story. You know, if you mm -hmm. do have access to publishing mechanisms, what you're going to want to do is express the story of your community mm -hmm. yourself, right? You, you, you 
and this is outside of that burden of representativeness that we were talking about. There's that wonderful way in which, um, you know, writing becomes a way of articulating where the writer is coming from, of offering an alternative history, which is which is different from the rewriting project, central to um, the post-colonial project. You, to write from one's own space, to give that space a validity, um, a meaningfulness, um, to to render it full of significance because you are writing from it. That is a quintessentially post-colonial task, and it's one that women, because of the, the double and triple colonization we were talking about, mm-hmm. that women do tend to favor. So it is true that a lot of post-colonial women's first novels or first poems, plays, come out of their own their own lives, their own condition, yeah. are autobiographical. I mean, one of my major issues with something like The Empire Writes Back or that idea of rewriting is that implicitly, even within the very language that we're using, it's still the old imperial metropolis that's at the centre of that. And I wonder if just relocating the story within what you know might have been imagined as a peripheral space and actually not imagining it as a peripheral space, imagining it as very central space. Mm. This is a really important. Uh, well, it's, it's very disruptive. It's very yeah. disruptive of those hegemonies yeah. that post-colonial writing, or if you like, world writing from the peripheries, is is up against. Um, you know, whose metropolis, whose centre? These are m- major questions that that these writers have to face. So maybe we can talk a bit more specifically about an example. Mm-hmm. We we were having quite a long think through about really prolific women uh, post-colonial writers. And we thought of Zoe Wickham, the um, Scottish South African author. I wondered if you wanted to perhaps introduce us to, mm. to Zoe Wickham's work. Yes, always delighted to introduce Zoe Wickham's work <laughs> to new audiences. She's not published in the UK, you know, which is itself interesting and significant. I'll say a bit, of, a bit more about that in a moment. So Zoe Wickham is... Uh, you know, a, a writer, as you were saying, who, as it were, commutes or shuttles between the, really quite specifically, the city spaces of Cape Town and Glasgow. She doesn't. Mm-hmm. She doesn't tend to move out into the, the hinterland of either city, very much, and is constantly, as it were, oscillating between these considerations of what it is to be northern and what it is to be southern, and dry and wet and. Mm-hmm grey and, and hot. She's born in 1947. She comes from the mixed-race, stroke, self-identified, coloured community of the Cape. And how her writing is particularly significant, I think, in terms of Southern African letters and writing, rather than post-colonial women's writing, is that she gives voice in English to that coloured community mm-hmm. of the Cape, which tends to be an Afrikaans-speaking community, so she, that she has chosen the world language of English, the global language, mm-hmm. was, I think, an important sort of linguistic political move, um, a way of, as it were, articulating her community's condition in, to a far wider audience, you know, bringing it to the notice of a, of a, of a global audience. Um, and for that reason... Her work correlates to some extent with the linguistic decision that the writer from the same space, the Cape, Jane Coetzee, made, mm-hmm. that they elected to 
write in English in order to bring their their work to a far wider audience. And Kutsi has given his you know stamp of approval on many occasions to right. Wickham's work and has been instrumental in introducing that work to a far wider readership. I'm getting back around to the fact that she's not as widely published, I think, as she should be. Her work remains very grounded in that space that she has, as it were, elected as her province, mm -hmm. the Cape, and the experience of the coloured community of the Cape. It's a you know, fascinating hi history, historical narrative, the narrative of the formation of that coloured community from the 1600s to... To the present day, but it's it's a very particular story. It's a very difficult story, very fraught story, kind of cut through and through with race, crime, and sex, crime, and clearly um, her work therefore has not always been to the taste of some audiences. So mm -hmm. she tends to be published by um, the feminist press, New York, and then by her South African publisher, Dual mm -hmm. Dual Publication. Um, and that, just to make a subsidiary point, which loops back round to what we were saying earlier about post-colonial women writers and the metropolis, so much of post-colonial, what we understand to be post-colonial writing, is determined by the market, and in particular yeah. by the decisions of the market in the old metropolis rather than you know on the on the mm -hmm. traditional periphery. And Zoe Wickham's work, which is fantastic, you know, very, very, very interesting and strong. She's, she ponders through, you know, what, what it means to speak a history, who speaks, who doesn't mm -hmm. speak, um, the excavation of suppressed histories. That very important work just hasn't mm -hmm. got to some audiences because of those marketplace decisions. She's also bringing up a, a point to do with form um, or genre. She's as much a short story yeah, writer as she is a as she is a novelist, gender disparities around work mm -hmm. I think do still impinge on who writes, who gets noticed, who gets yeah. reviewed. And you know, again the market has deemed, you know, the short stories not to be as sellable, as profitable as mm. as novels. So I'm sure she, she suffers for that reason. As do other, interestingly, yeah. other post-colonial women writers. The, the short story genre is a genre favoured by women across time. You could think of you know, Mansfield, for example. Mm -hmm. the, the short story genre is something that um, can be fostered in between time. It doesn't need the time commitment of the novel. And it's therefore a genre that Anita Desai, again, has herself taken to. She's also a writer of novellas. Olive Senior, very much taken to, and then the, the wonderful and still somewhat marginalised Alice Munro from Canada, mm -hmm. who is probably the greatest short story writer alive today. It would be very interesting, very, very interesting um, as to whether Margaret Atwood, a name we haven't yet mentioned, yeah. a very, very significant post-colonial a woman writer who has always refused, I think for strategic reasons, the feminist label, uh, to the extent to which she will be sort of recognised in the next decade or so. Uh, I was delighted personally when uh, Doris Lessing was awarded, I think it was the 2008 Nobel Prize mm. for Literature, as much of a surprise to her as it was to many of her fans, because you know, we thought that she would never be properly recognised, partly because 
Um, she's taken on any number of different genres, experimented with mm. sci-fi, a short story, historical novel, um, dystopian novel, and so on. Um, but, you know, if you, if you cast your mind across the list of Nobel Prize winners for literature from 1903 yeah. to the present day, you know, women number about a sixth to a fifth of the names, mm. and that raises really serious questions about why women writers and not only poets but women writers are not represented in the ways that that male mm-hmm. writers are post-colonial women writers names simply don't come tripping off the tongue in the way that could see yeah. Rushdie, Ghosh, Walcott, Naipaul so many yeah. yeah it's worth saying perhaps just as a footnote that male critics and writers are extraordinarily good at supporting, citing, name-dropping, endorsing, and promoting one another. Mm-hmm. The leading critic, for example, James Wood, will have a kind of an arsenal of writers' names headlining his own work which tend to be, by and large majority, the great male writers. Mm -hmm. And James Wood's reviews will then be cited on those writers' book covers. And I'm making a book historical point, really. There's a kind of of give and take between the marketplace, the critical academy, and the novelists that that keeps all three bodies, if you like, in circulation. Women, although we're meant to be, you know, supportive of one another and good at team building, we're not as good, it has to do with power structures, I'm sure, we're just not as good at supporting one another in those kinds of Mm. ways, these sort of citational, authoritative citational ways. This might be really cheeky to ask, Mm. do you consider yourself a post-colonial woman writer? Um, (laughs) Do I consider myself a post-colonial woman writer? Um, Yes and no is, is my response. Yes, because I think it's strategically and politically important to identify with a group whose, if you like, dilemmas and questions I absolutely share. Um, No, because um, I'm with Margaret Atwood uh, on the limitations of labelling, of labelling writers, and particularly resistant because labelling is often done more in relation to women writers or third world writers or post-colonial writers than it is in relation to male writers. I remember a long time ago my wonderful supervisor John Storworthy saying to me, you know, Alika, you're always on about women writers. I mean, can't we just talk about writers? And I remember saying to him, Yes, we can talk about writers when it will be as possible and acceptable to refer to women under that generic heading mm-hmm. as to, to men. It, yeah. I think it's still perhaps less so than when John Stallworthy and I had our conversation, but I think it's still the case that when we say writer, we tend still to think of the pronoun he, mm-hmm. and therefore yeah. woman writer is required in order to designate a certain often political um, and aesthetic position, Mm. yeah. Well, thank you very much, Annika, for talking to us. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Uh, It would be great in future to see more women featured on the
post-colonial pages of great writers inspire. <laughs>